and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We are taping today on Friday, April 16th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by a video conference by Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Welcome back, Rebecca. Good morning. Tammy Luby of CNN. Hello. And Shafali Luthra of the 19th. Hello. No interview today, but tons of news, so let us get right to it. Let's start with COVID. I guess this is the week where we hit our biggest vaccine speed bump. On Monday, the CDC and the FDA jointly called for a pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine after six reports of a dangerous kind of blood clot that killed one woman and had two more still in the ICU. Now I believe there's a seventh report. Remember that seven out of more than seven million vaccines given, so a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion of patients. Still, the CDC's Vaccine Advisory Committee met on Wednesday and put off making a recommendation about whether to go ahead with the vaccine or whether to recommend it just for certain populations or whether it should be shelved altogether. How big a blow is this to the U.S. vaccine effort and to the world vaccine effort? I think those are two different questions. They are. Because at this point, right, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been such a tiny fraction, right? Less than 5% of the vaccines given out. The supply has been fairly limited and looks to be pretty slow still for a bit, given all the manufacturing delays. So there have been real concerns for right these equity initiatives, right? Giving it to people who, who are experiencing homelessness, using it for mobile clinics. But it's not necessarily going to slow us down a ton yet. But globally, this is this is not great, right? Because between Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, which are both very similar vaccine technologies, you have this concern that is leading to, to pauses to Australia and not wanting to buy J&J vaccines. These are cheaper, they're easier to distribute, they are one shot. And already, right, in a lot of African countries, we've seen real nervousness about getting these vaccines given all the reports in, in Europe and now the US. I think this could be another blow in that direction. And yet these were the vaccines that were going to be so important for the developing world, because unlike Moderna and Pfizer, which not only need two doses, but need to be kept really cold, um, these were much easier to to transport and keep. One other issue is, is that it's a blow to combating vaccine hesitancy. We've been hearing that supply is not the issue anymore. Now it's the somewhat the demand. You know, everyone who's wanted the vaccine, who's been happy to get it, most of them have gotten it. And now it's getting to the populations who are more hesitant. I have a friend who has been hesitant and got the vaccine on Friday, got Johnson and Johnson on Friday. And I was so thankful for her that she got it. And she was very happy to get it. And then, you know, when this news came out, she was like, what did I do? You know, should I be taking baby aspirin now? You know, and I was like, no, don't panic. It's okay. But she'd been eligible before. She had waited until now. And, you know, if her vaccine appointment had been on Monday or Tuesday, she probably would not get it for weeks. And, you know, that's a concern. And to Tammy's point, yes, um, there was an Economist YouGov poll that came out that said before the vaccine, about 52% of adults were saying that it was very safe or somewhat safe. But after the news on Tuesday, 
only 37% said that. And this is a poll that came out right after the news, so it had that much of a difference immediately. As this trickles out, it may have more of an impact. And I saw a little story that the most popular link on Facebook was not a news source about this. It was uh, someone sharing a CNN story, but it was a conspiracy theorist named Anomaly who put a misleading headline and, and commentary on it. And Facebook is not gonna take down that post. And so this raises all sorts of concerns about, you know, is this a safe vaccine? Because we all know people who are concerned about getting a vaccine because they say, oh, it's been developed so quickly, you know. But of course, obviously, we all also know that the dangers of getting a blood clot from COVID-19 are way higher than getting it from a vaccine. It's also higher to get hit by lightning. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like what's not clear to me at this point, though, and maybe you all have seen polling that looks into this specifically, but whether the hesitancy or nervousness around the Johnson Johnson vaccine then translates right to the Pfizer and Moderna ones. And if it doesn't, then then that's really important context, too. Right. That is very important. And the polling I've seen suggested that people were still more trusting of Moderna and Pfizer. Um, They may not realize that what the differences are between the mRNA vaccine and the other vaccines, but many people have understood that the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are not being pulled and not being delayed. Right. But that's going to mean also that cities and, you know, vaccination centers are going to really have to press on the fact to people that they won't get Johnson and Johnson, because right now you don't always know what you're getting. You often don't know what you're getting when you go. And so especially if they restart the Johnson and Johnson, people might be like, well, I don't want that one. Yeah. And also, I mean, there's also the issue of people having to come back, as as Shafali was mentioning, you know, the advantage of AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson is that it's one and done and you don't have to chase people down and make sure they come back for their second appointment. And also there's a lot of extra vaccine and not a lot of demand in some places, but there's still a lot of demand in a lot of places. Um, And now instead of being able to to give one shot, people are they're going to have to the place they're giving the vaccine are going to have to continue to reschedule and make sure that they leave time and, and doses for people to come back and get their second one. So one would presume that it's going to slow things down at least a little bit. I mean, I know that Johnson Johnson wasn't a huge portion of what was being given in the U.S. until now, but it was supposed to be ramping up over the next month. And, and one of the points that was made at the meeting this week of the advisors was that this is going to be really difficult for people who are most at risk, people who are homeless. People have a hard time coming back for that second shot, whether it's because they don't have transportation or they you know, can't take time off their job. Having a one-shot deal was very important for certain segments of the population. The thing that is also interesting to me, uh, all of the theories that people sort of had been floating early on about what might be behind, right? Because not just the the blood clots, it's blood clots and low platelet count, which is which is scarier. But the people who who developed these, none of them were pregnant. Maybe one of them was taking estrogen progesterone, and those are the things that we thought we really don't have a good sense for what was behind sort of the elevated risk for this, even if it is really rare. And one thing that I definitely want to learn more about over the next week is if there are more cases reported, even if they're few, will we ever be able to figure out what the pattern is? Well, I know that one of the options for the advisory committee is to not recommend it for, you know, women, what, between 18 and 49, basically for let's let's give it to people who aren't women of childbearing years. But I think the low platelet issue is also an issue with uh, Pfizer and Moderna, because I know someone who had a blood test soon after getting a vaccine and had low platelets. 
had never had them before. And then spoke to the cardiologist and this cardiologist was like, well, yeah, you know, don't worry about it. I'm sure it'll come up again. But it was odd that it was timed that way. In the meantime, I should point out that now millions and millions of people in the United States and around the world have had these vaccines with um, with extremely few ill effects. I mean, remember, we have a we have a vaccine injury compensation fund in the United States because in a, in a very small number of people, vaccines can have side effects. There is no vaccine that is 100 percent perfect and 100 percent safe, although these are like way up there with the really good vaccines that we have. We have talked at some length the last two weeks about the coming of vaccine passports. Now the Wall Street Journal is documenting something else that was probably just as predictable. Fake COVID documents. At the moment, they seem to be fake test results for required COVID tests for international travel. But there's a lot of concern about the faking of vaccine documents, too. How much of this entire enterprise of attempting to reopen is really just based on trusting people to do the right thing? That's terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) And we thought the worst was the lamination, but (laughs) yes, don't don't laminate your vaccine card. You're probably going to need a booster. I mean, because the White House doesn't really have a plan, right, to regulate the sprawling new vaccine COVID documentation industry, right? They were asked about that this week, and they were just like... They were asked about it last week, too. They keep getting asked about it. They keep saying, we don't want to do this. But, like, states and businesses are going to, and it does seem that without some sort of central governing authority, we do, you're right, have to rely on trust, which hasn't always worked out in our favor. Yeah, I think 2020 showed us that trusting our fellow citizens to do the right thing is not maybe a great strategy, but it legions, generations of teenagers that know how to get fake IDs. Um, <laughs> it's easier to make a fake COVID document than it is to make a fake driver's license. I, I don't think there's anything you're going to be able to do about it. I mean, it's the way of the world. It makes me wonder about the usefulness of these documents. You know, everybody seems to be going to so much trouble to to say, well, we can keep things safe by requiring people to, you know, show their proof of test or vaccine. And yet. Right. But like the very bad side effects, I think this is going to be in the minority, you know, in the small minority. So, yes, will there be fraud? Sure. But does that mean that we shouldn't do this at all? You know, probably not. Mm. And also, right, schools have a long history of requiring kids show proof of vaccination, right? So they, if anyone, will have the infrastructure in place to do it. Yes, maybe the schools should lead on this. I'm surprised no one has suggested that yet. All right, well, back here in Washington, uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra made his first official trip to Capitol Hill this week to testify before the House Appropriations Committee on President Biden's fiscal 2022 budget request, which includes a lot of large boosts for most federal health programs. Um, Rebecca, this budget basically ignores the last bipartisan budget deal, yet the Democrats have only a tiny majority, even in the House. Are we expecting big boosts to health spending this year? I think that we will see increases. I think that the pandemic strengthens the argument for that. You know, the Biden request would be a 23% increase over the 2021 enacted level. They may not get quite that much, um, but there's been bipartisan support, Julie, as you know, for NIH, for example, for the past 10 years. More than that. It's like 20 years. Yes, right. We've been getting $2 billion annual increases, you know, for quite a while. So, you know, I think that when you're talking about things like the new initiative dealing with 
cancer and diabetes and Alzheimer's as part of this. There's this new NIH research initiative that would get $6.5 billion, I believe. And then you're talking about um, pushing up NIH funding from about $43 billion last year to $51 billion this year. That sort of stuff, I mean, it's a significant increase. That's a, even for NIH, even for the very popular NIH, that's a big increase. Yes, but I do think that there will be support for a large amount of money going in this direction. Um, I think that the money for the CDC, I think that they're going to get $8.7 billion, which is about $1.6 billion over the previous year. CDC has been underfunded, a lot of public health experts say, for quite a while. And I think that, you know, they're going to, it's going to be hard to argue against that sort of thing. And then there are lots of other things that are part of this, you know, the $10.7 billion for the opioid epidemic. Um, That is something that was talked about in a couple of hearings this week. Um, And I think that, you know, it came as we saw that there was a huge increase in the number of overdose deaths during the pandemic from October 2019 to September 2020, um, 87,000 people dying of overdose. And so I think that that is, again, something that's going to be hard to for Republicans to say no to. And, you know, Congress, is, uh, Congress has shown that it knows how to spend money. And certainly that's been true over the past year. Yeah, they, they disagree on a lot of issues, but the one thing they can usually find some agreement on is spending money. But I, I mean, I'm interested before we leave, you know, in the whole opioid crisis, because it, it has sort of taken a public backseat. It's hard to, to hold two health crises, you know, at top of mind at the same time. But I feel like Congress felt like when they passed their opioid bill, what was at the end of 2018, um, that they had addressed this and really, you know, and then it looked in 2019 like things were getting better. And so they sort of said, we'll move on to the next thing. But the opioid crisis is so not over. It really isn't. And it's very sad. And you're right that Congress has multiple times come in and tried to do something about the opioid epidemic. For a while, it was like every election was going to have some sort of opioid legislation. But we saw this big jump and it was just, I think, alarming to a lot of people. It was something that tracked with preliminary data that has come out previously. Well, while we were talking about the budget, um, President Biden this week signed a bill that would delay the required sequester for Medicare, a sequester dating back to the last big budget deal that happened in 2011. I can't believe it was 10 years ago. Um, This is the third time this particular cut has been put off in the last, I think, year and a half. It's a 2% Medicare cut. It would take effect next year. But the American Rescue Act, the COVID relief bill that just passed, would trigger a separate and bigger sequester next year. Rebecca, you you remember, Tammy, you probably do too, the the whole dock fee fix that went on for (laughs) 10 or 15 years where Congress kept, you know, stepping in at the last minute to prevent what turned into bigger and bigger cuts to physician payments under Medicare. Now we're looking at sort of the same thing. Is Congress just going to keep kicking this ball down the road like they did? with the dock fee? Or are we going to, you know, resolve this whole sequester issue at some point? One one would presume they're not going to let large cuts to Medicare happen, at least in the immediate future. No. Right now. I mean, the hospitals have been saying, I mean, they're, they're cheering this. The hospitals have been saying, you know, that they're still dealing with COVID ramifications. You know, many of them are seeing lower patient volumes. And as we see, unfortunately, in the country, you know, cases are ramping up. You know, Michigan hospitals are in trouble. So, you know, right now you're not going to be cutting payments to hospitals. 
Yes, absolutely not. And I think this is going to be similar to what we see with disproportionate share hospital payments and, you know, the dog fix and everything else. Congress has a hard time cutting Medicare, um, even if it's Medicare providers and even if it's not going to affect patient care. I think that politically it's, it's just not a good look to be cutting Medicare in any way. Um, so I think that what we're probably going to see is at the end of the year in the spending package, like we've seen every year, they're going to address the pay-as-you-go cuts and they're going to address the sequester cuts again because those are going to expire again. And so again, it'll be another moment for us to talk about this, but in the end, they're, they're just not going to be able to do anything related to Medicare cuts. Even even anything, just the optics are so bad. And I will point out that this bill that, that Biden just signed, this sort of little bill that's like, let's kick it down the road till the end of the year, was a bipartisan bill. Yes, so. overwhelmingly. I think there are only like 38 lawmakers that voted against this thing. Uh, yeah, and it passed the Senate 98 to right. 2. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So there's not a lot of things Democrats and Republicans agree on, but you're right that not cutting Medicare is something that they tend to agree on, at least at the moment. All right. So it's the middle of April and the Biden administration is still trying to staff itself up. Uh, this week, we saw confirmation hearings for Chiquita Brooks-Lashore to head the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and Andrea Palm to be Deputy HHS Secretary. Both women are veterans of the Obama administration, HHS, and considered highly qualified for those posts. And while there were some tough questions from Republicans on the Finance Committee about immigration, HHS, remember, is responsible for caring for unaccompanied minors who cross the border. Um, Also, some questions about abortion. Both seem headed for some fairly easy confirmations. Anybody see any resistance to either of these? Are we we past the point of stopping HHS nominations right now? I think they will have a pretty easy confirmation. It's going to be much different than the, what, 50 to 49 vote for Javier Becerra a few weeks ago. I think that they are well positioned to do well. Um, They did get questions about pet projects in different lawmakers districts. They got asked about that opioid increase. We talked about the 29% increase in opioid deaths. They got asked about the children at the border, which is a big issue and which Republicans are turning into a very important uh, political issue too. So Um, I think those are things that you would expect to be flashpoints in the debate, but I don't think these nominees have anything to worry about. And, and Tammy, I missed this part, um, but they I guess they also talked about the public option, didn't they? Yes, I only was able, unfortunately, to watch the beginning of the hearing, but I just th- found it notable that Senator Ron Wyden, who chairs it, kicked off the hearing asking Brooks LaShore right off the bat about, interestingly, not a national, but he asked about state ability to implement public option and, you know, balanced it with saying some states want to do more conservative options. But, you know, I think he's acknowledging the fact that maybe this won't happen on a national level, but maybe it'll start in the states and work its way up. And then, of course, Senator Bennett afterwards, who's a big advocate of the public option, also voiced this. And and she said, you know, I support the Biden administration, who which advocates for a public option. So, you know, maybe we'll be seeing this sometime in the next four years. Well, Wyden, of course, wrote the piece of the Affordable Care Act that let states right. experiment. And he, so and he, he does that. like to bring that up. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And he does tend to mention that he wrote it. Brooks LeSher has also written about the public option before. Sorry. And on the state level, that's what Monada Health does. So. Yeah. Right. Which is where she where she went when she left the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Is that, was that your point, Shivali? Yes. Yeah, sorry. To say no, more? I was saying that she, like, she's written about it. She also, didn't she consult for New Mexico on their Medicaid buy-in proposal? Like, 
she is one of the people to ask about this and it it is to happen to to sort of be a CMS leader on it. Yeah, and I th- and I think people sort of forget how I mean obviously Andrea Palm to be deputy HHS secretary that's a really big job, but I would say that after the secretary, head of CMS is the biggest job in HHS. It's one of the biggest jobs in the government. You're not only overseeing Medicare and Medicaid, you're overseeing the Affordable Care Act now. Um, the CMS does, you know, has control over a very significant part of the federal budget, probably the single biggest part of the federal budget outside the Defense Department. Um, it used to be, I'm sort of surprised at how easily this seems to be going, because for years, Congress couldn't even confirm a CMS director, because it was always hung up, not over necessarily the person, but over the fact that Every member of the Senate wanted to hang up a nomination for some pet issue that had to do with billions and possibly trillions of dollars. So this this would be sort of a sea change if they get this through easily. Well, remember, one of the things they said about Becerra, their main attack was that he was not qualified. They can't do that with her because she's clearly one of the most qualified you know, nominees for CMS administrator that there is. So what are they going to hang her up on? Mark McClellan, had, who was also right. highly qualified, had trouble getting through, not because he wasn't qualified, but because the Senate itself was fighting about CMS. So it's, it's always been about CMS, not about the actual qualifications of the nominee. Several nominees who ended up only as acting administrators, they were perfectly well qualified, but they just got caught in the jaws of fights over various things that were going on at CMS, mostly the Affordable Care Act. But before that, you know, there was no Affordable Care Act when Mark McClellan's nomination got up. Right. Well, she didn't seem to be hesitant and shying away from saying that she supports the public option, which is, you know, a huge Republican pitfall. So, yeah. So there, there will be many more fights to come. Well, there was a lot of news on the reproductive health front this week first, and a little shout out here to my project tracking the Biden administration's rollback of Trump health policies. We will link to it in the show notes. Uh, HHS this week formally proposed rules to undo the Trump administration's rules for the Title X family planning program. Those are the rules that were meant to, and at this point have, uh, evicted Planned Parenthood from the program. The rules are similar to ones first proposed by President Reagan, and I will date myself here when I admit I covered those original rules too. They forbid recipients of federal family planning funds from referring pregnant patients for abortion and require family planning clinics that also provide abortion to be physically and financially separate. When the Trump rules took effect in 2019, not just Planned Parenthood, but lots of other Title X providers dropped out of the program because they said the rules violated medical ethics because they couldn't give pregnant women all their medically appropriate information. Um, This has dramatically reduced the availability of Title X services around the country. In six states, there are now no Title X funded sites. Yet the Biden administration is kind of slow walking this. These are proposed rules. So the Trump rules could be in place for many more months until they are finalized. Anybody have any theories on sort of why the administration didn't just suspend the rules, why they're going through the process? I'm seeing a lot of shaking heads. The only thought that I have is one thing folks have mentioned to me is sort of they are aware that the courts are not as friendly to the Biden administration as to the Trump administration. And any appearance of not being absolutely by the book in rulemaking could be really damaging for said rules. That's all I've got. 
That's actually a very good point. That there, I mean, remember these rules are in effect because there was an, an appeals court that said they could be in effect. There are lower court rulings all over the place. Um, although I will point out, having covered this forever, that very similar rules were upheld by the Supreme Court in 1991. I was personally surprised that George W. Bush didn't put these rules back into effect when he became president. That was something I was expecting that didn't happen. But at you know, certainly this Supreme Court is a lot more conservative than the Supreme Court was in. 1991, when they said that even more stringent rules than this were okay. And the original rules said you couldn't even mention abortion as an option, not just that you couldn't refer for abortion. That's how it came to be known as the gag rule, because they were not allowed to talk about abortion. And the Supreme Court upheld those rules. So one would assume that the Biden administration would not like to see these rules go to court. Meanwhile, the Biden FDA, which still doesn't have a nominated commissioner, also kept another promise to abortion rights supporters this week. It said it is waiving a rule that otherwise requires women who want medical abortions to receive the abortion pill in person from a doctor, at least until the pandemic emergency is over. This was also an ongoing fight. A number of uh, medical groups had petitioned the FDA um, to, to waive the rules, and it ended up in court, and it ended up at the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled with the Trump administration, which is why it was in effect. But I feel like the administration doesn't really want to talk about any of this. Biden himself has never been comfortable talking about abortion rights, and his aides seem to constantly want to change the subject. It used to be that Democratic administrations didn't want to talk about abortion because there were lots of anti-abortion Democrats in swing districts in both the House and the Senate. But now there are relatively few of those left. Is this going to be a thing for this administration, or have they not realized that that more that most of the Democrats, at least in Congress, are now uh, abortion rights supporters? I mean, it just it, it their attitude towards reproductive health seems like a throwback to a time that is no longer i think biden um who, who is catholic i think probably personally is uncomfortable with the idea of broadcasting this and perhaps antagonizing some of those swing state suburban voters who you know they supported him in the last election but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to come back and vote democratic all the way in the midterms or in the next presidential election so i think he's trying to be careful with this i do think that he believes or the white house seems to believe that there's a political risk at the same time you mentioned that they're doing all these things and they're doing a long list of things to try to help appease the base and help bring out those pro-choice Democrats with the FDA decision to not enforce the um, abortion by mail, as some people call it, (laughs) provision, then, you know, they're, they're basically doing what they can to try to Um, shore up support among abortion rights supporters while not drawing too much attention to it Uh, that and that hopefully they want to sidestep political opposition. And the interesting question also about the medication abortion right is like this is just for the duration of the pandemic. And the question really naturally is what happens after and we have a lot of medical experts right including right former FDA leaders saying the in-person requirement should be suspended altogether. So to Rebecca's point, I think that will be a really significant test in terms of thinking about how exactly the Biden administration wants to think about reproductive health and sort of speaking to those voters. And the FDA letter um, actually saying that they're going to suspend their, they're going to not enforce the in-person requirement, noted that it was before the Supreme Court stepped in in January, there had not been an in-person requirement. A lower court had, had said, yeah, you don't need to do this in person while there's a pandemic going on. So we had what 
seven, eight months where it was not in effect. And the FDA noted that there were not a lot of problems that were, you know, there. there's concern there. Again, when we talk about like minuscule happenings, there has been on occasion some issue with the abortion pill. But again, it's very small. And frankly, the in-person requirement, you don't have to take it when the doctor gives gives it to you. I mean, the in-person requirement is that the doctor gives it to you, but you can go home and take it. It's hard to see sort of the medical reasoning for this. Originally, when, when the pill was approved in 2000, I think you originally had to stay. You're right. I think when the public health emergency is over, and in theory, we could go back to a lot of these safety rules. These are all safety rules for these drugs to see whether some of them maybe, you know, will, will go by the wayside. Obviously, this will have political implications as well as medical implications. And it's just interesting how abortion Abortion is changing. I mean, we're seeing fewer and fewer abortion clinics because of the Trump administration policies, but we're we're potentially seeing more people take the medication abortion. Um, I think something like 60% of people who are eligible to take the abortion pill rather than do a surgical abortion, about 60% of abortion patients at that stage do it that way. So the dynamic is changing. You're not you're not seeing quite as many people go in for these types of services. Yes, and this has freaked out the anti-abortion movement. I mean, you can't sort of picket everybody's houses. Um, it's th- This is something that they were worried about from the beginning when, when this was approved. But you're right, it went. It was approved in 2000. By 2008, 2009, it was about a third. And now it's, you know, a majority um, of women who are eligible for, you know, for medication abortion uh, uh, opt for it. So we will see how it goes. All right, well, one more thing this week um, while we're talking about medication. Um, and also speaking of long-running fights, a federal appeals court has upheld a federal trade commission ruling on a pay-for-delay drug case. That's when a brand-name drug maker pays a generic drug maker not to bring the generic copy to market for a period of time. The brand-name company does well because there's no competition yet. The generic company makes out because it just got paid by the brand-name company. But consumers are hurt because competition drives down prices and this is stopping competition. Congress has been trying to limit or ban this on a bipartisan basis for at least 20 years. May should go back and look, maybe even more. Might we finally see this go away? I mean, we keep talking about drug prices. This is like, this is the lowest of low-hanging fruit. You cannot, you cannot bribe your competition not to bring its drug to market. There's a reason why it's been going on for so long. And, you know, we don't, we haven't yet seen from the Biden administration what they're going to push. So we don't know yet. When it comes to drug prices, right? Yes. We don't know about their drug price strategy or focus. And just to build on those points, you know, it, it is something that's been an ongoing debate forever. We remember when Frank Lautenberg, the Democrat from New Jersey, was pushing this ages ago. And it's interesting that the Federal Trade Commission was the one that was able to do this because it's just so hard to get legislation through Congress. I mean, remember how long it took just to get the CREATES Act through, which is just this little tiny thing that allows um, generic companies to get samples of brand name drugs. And there have been, in the past year, there have been a few other things that the drug companies have had to give in on or that did not win on. Um, But they're relatively small things in the overall scheme of things, especially when you consider that President Trump was pushing so hard or rhetorically was talking about lowering drug prices. Um, and Democrats were there doing the same thing. So you could have seen something much more ambitious in, in that environment. Nothing dramatic really happened. And, you know, you have to wonder whether anything dramatic would happen in the next four years either in Congress. And like hospitals right now, people are not going to start picking fights with drug companies at the moment. That's right. The vaccines have uh, have done a 
fair bit to burnish the halo of the the drug industry, which is ironic because the drug industry in general has been getting out of making vaccines because they haven't been profitable. But that's a discussion for another day. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Tammy, why don't you go first this week? Okay, well, my story is a ProPublica story, and I could spend time just talking about how wonderful a reporter Caroline Chen is because she was one of my star students at Columbia. But I will talk about her story. So her story, the headline is a tiny number of people will be hospitalized despite being vaccinated. We have to learn why. And it's basically talking about breakthrough infections. Now, you know, we've been talking all about how wonderful the vaccine is, and and obviously it is. But as you know, our medical experts say it doesn't mean that you can, you know, just all drop your masks and go run off and have large parties at restaurants and such. And so the CDC came out and talked about these breakthrough infections. And I think they had said uh, earlier this week that there were 5,800 cases reported so far, although there is a delay in reporting. But, you know, Caroline's story is basically talking about the issue of variants and about how successful the vaccines are against variants and that we need to look out for these variants and understand who's more vulnerable. And, you know, as we know that the U.S. has not been as good as other countries in sequencing for variants as money. There was a lot of money put in the American Rescue Plan to try to do more of this. So this is just a story looking at, yes, you know, you're vaccinated, but it doesn't 100 percent mean that you're safe and that we should understand who's most at risk. Still got to be careful out there. Shafali. So this is a story that I wrote for the 19th. And it, the headline is 69% of women under age 30 say COVID-19 has harmed their mental health. And it comes from a KFF report. And the reason I want to highlight this is this is just going to be so important for the next year, for the next years. We are only beginning to understand just how significant the, the mental health implications have been and how gendered they have, right? You have almost 70% of, of young women. You have 55% of women overall. Our mental health care system has long really struggled to meet need. And I just think this is such an important theme for anyone who cares about, about health, about equity, really about like the future of our country to, to pay attention to. Yeah, we, we have not done a great we've not done a great job with the opioid epidemic. And frankly, that's kind of an outgrowth of the fact that we've done a really terrible job with mental health. Rebecca. Amen to that. I chose a story by my colleague, Ariel Cohen. It's broader vaccine eligibility may exacerbate racial inequities. And Ariel just wrote about how, you know, we all know that um, Black and Hispanic people are getting um, the COVID-19 vaccine shots at a lower rate than white people. I think Black people were 8.4% of the people who've received a dose. Hispanic people were 11.1%. And white people were 65% of people who have gotten the vaccine. Um, Even though people of color do not report higher vaccine hesitancy rates in several surveys than white people. In fact, in one of them, um, I think 77% of Black people said that they would get a shot compared to 70% of white people. So she really kind of digs into that and talks about how, you know, as as we see more states opening up and eligibility to all adults by April 19th, that can really cause a problem because these people have had access problems and those need to be fixed in order 
to make sure that things are fair because again we all know that people of color have suffered more from the coronavirus than than white people so i was glad that she drew attention to this issue yeah and you know they're less likely to have jobs that enable them to just take a half a day and you know and go get a shot it, i think the access issue is something that we haven't really looked at hopefully we will start to now well my story is from my khn colleagues christina jewett and lauren weber and it's called redfield joins big ass fans which promotes controversial covid killing technology and i chose it partly because yes i wanted to say big ass fans on the podcast but also because this is the second high level trump health official to offer his name to a firm with questionable technology deborah burks has signed on with a company called act Pure that also claims to have virus-destroying technology about which there are questions. In Redfield's case, the fan company is marketing something called a clean air system that claims to kill 99.99% of pathogens. And while its fans definitely move a lot of air, they are big, uh, it's not quite as clear that its air cleaning technology lives up to its claims. At least we don't really know that yet. Anyway, it is an excellent story. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks as always to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound good even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Rebecca? At Rebecca Adams, DC. Shafali? At Shafali L. Tammy? At Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Thank you.